hardworking drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to the Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and my interview today is with Dan Schnell. Dan was born and raised in New York, but came to L.A. to attend USC and has stayed there ever since. Uh, He is ubiquitous on the L.A. jazz scene as a member of several ongoing groups, including Josh Nelson's Discovery Project, and as a go-to for artists doing one-off concerts or short stints in L.A. While at USC, he studied with Ndugu Chancellor, Aron Sarfati, Peter Erskine, and Terry Lynn Carrington. Uh, And it was cool to hear about the unique ass-kicking, for lack of a better term, that he received from each of those teachers. He has some interesting thoughts on the L.A. jazz scene versus New York jazz scene and the pros and cons of both. Uh, This is a good deep dive into the past and present of jazz drumming. You always hear about the hours of practicing and listening and performing that uh, mastering jazz requires. And when you hear Dan play and speak about it, it's obvious he's been putting those hours in for a long time. Uh, We recorded this at Dan's house, where his daughter was very curious about what was going on behind that closed door. So you'll hear a couple of her contributions to the interview, despite uh, Dan's wife's best efforts to corral her. But uh, she's two and a half and more than cute enough to be forgiven. Uh, So here we go with Dan Schnell. Enjoy. Did you grow up in New York proper? I was born in the village. Wow. Uh, my parents are from like Hempstead, Queens. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the most part, I grew up on Long Island. I okay. Mean, I know the city very well. Right. And a lot of my family has lived in the city, but I never lived in the city proper. Okay. For, yeah, any okay. extended period of time. What was your musical experience growing up in New York? Like, when did, when did music start and how did it start? Uh, well, music was always in the house. Mm-hmm. But that's partially because I have, like, three older brothers who were in band in school. So mm-hmm. there was always instruments around. Um, but I, I don't know why or how, but I totally just chose to play the drums mm-hmm. in, like, second grade. <laughs> I was that ass that actually set up, like, five-gallon paint buckets and pots and pans right. and... My dad encouraged it because his dad did not let him mm. because it was too much volume in the house. Right. And then so by like third grade, I was already taking, you know, short half hour private drum lessons. And right. then, um, when they wanted to do auditions at school, they wanted me to play violin because I had good melodic retention. Huh. And I was like, No. <laughs> <laughs> not playing the violin. Never even tried it? Never tried it. I was like, I'm playing the drums or I'm not playing anything. <laughs> I was like this stubborn little ass. Right, right. And um, and my mom went and talked to the teacher and was like, well, look, he already started drum lessons. So, mm-hmm. like, can, can we just give it a try? They said I had bad rhythm. Really? Yeah, which I thought was really awesome, like, looking back on it. I did not know all of this until probably, like, Seven or eight years ago, really? my mom told me about it. Wow. I did not know. So good melodic retention and bad rhythm. Yes. Let's play the drums. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. Um, which I definitely uh, showed them. 
Yeah. I'm, as I was like all county and all state in yeah, sixth grade. Right, so right. like it was a pretty quick. So it was drums from the start. Drums from the start. At, at what point did it become jazz? Like at what point did you say this jazz is what I want to do? Not for a long time. Really? College. Okay. Yeah. So what were you, what did you do up until then? Garage bands and, and. Yeah, I did not play in bands that much. Just in school? I played in school a lot, and I played at home a lot, mm-hmm. and I took lessons pretty seriously. And so I learned a lot of um, technical stuff, and I learned how to play along to a lot of my favorite stuff, which was good and bad. It was mm-hmm. like it paid off in the long run, but it also was bad in that like I did not always realize where my shortcomings were when I'm playing along to a recording that's totally happening. Right. Oh, there's a little little foot. <laughs> it's a cute little foot sticking <laughs> um, So, yeah, you know, I, I learned play along to like... Chicago and mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. And yeah. In high school, I was like a Carter Beaufort like freak. I loved that. Yeah. I was like, I should learn to play open handed and mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, and the lick. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. I still use that let's, lick, man. Let's steal some Billy Cobham and just, you know overuse every Billy Cobham lick we can find. Yeah. Um, although he does it wonderfully, so I can't say anything about it. Yeah, um, and, uh, yeah, I took serious drum lessons. Though. I took drum lessons with this guy named Al Miller, mm-hmm. who I don't know if you know who that is. But I know he, the name. Yeah. yeah, he was like a um, disciple of Jim Chapin right, okay. and uh, was good friends with Buddy and was like all technical big band guy, mm-hmm. loud and proud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's got like. I went through like three or four of his books of all these different fills, all these different coordination things. And because of that, I actually got some lessons with Jim Chapin, which was pretty fantastic. Cool. Cool. Uh, So was there a disconnect between what he was pushing on you in lessons and what you were actually doing on your own at home, like playing, playing the rock records or were you combining? No, that was pretty combining. Yeah. I think the, the, the thing that I lacked severely was the, the musicianship side of it. Mm-hmm. I was not being, I mean, I did what I needed to do mm-hmm. in school. So like I could read music, I could read like the mallet parts and I could do the timpani stuff. And I was, I did like all state timpani and all that yeah. in junior high. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I started studying with him in high school and it was just all drums. And it was never like, why are we playing this fill here it was like you could use this here right and then it's just like cool (laughs) and that uh definitely has its limits Mm -hmm. as we all know Mm -hmm. um but yeah so i learned a lot more about drums all through high school than i did about their setting in the music except for what i was i guess naturally learning from listening to a lot of great music that was classic rock oriented i guess Mm -hmm. a lot of jimmy Hendrix, so I checked out a lot of Mitch Mitchell. So, yeah. you know, that's yeah. good, good shit to check out. And this is, I was I was going to get to this later in the interview, but it seems like as good a time to bring it up as any. One of the projects you do currently is this thing called Project Popular. Oh, yeah. With, Tom's With project. Tom Lure, saxophonist, which is a, a group that takes pop rock 
material from like the 90s, mm-hmm. 80s? Mostly 90s. Okay. There's a Prince tune in there, so that's 80s. Yeah. But um so, you know, I I know you as as just a jazz drummer. Right. And I'm I'm wondering what your relationship with pop music has been over the years and obviously you started listening to it and playing along with it from an early age. Yeah. But like how, how has your relationship with pop and rock and, and those drummers and those styles and that skill set sort of come along with you into your, into your heavy jazz years? Um, I don't know. Um, it certainly hasn't been mindful. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent so much time probably partially because of my older brothers and my dad's listening habits that that were based on, like I said, classic rock and all that. So I grew up listening to that. Like the jazz that I listened to was like some Miles Davis mm-hmm. and lots of what you would call pops, you know, like Sinatra stuff right. and Ella. Kind of the, but the same stuff everybody starts out listening to yeah. when they get into jazz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Without being like into jazz. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I guess I already had a connection to that music that I kind of let go of to study jazz more mm-hmm. seriously. That being said, when I decided to come, come out here and go to USC, I remember thinking like, oh, like I want to be like the next... Steve Gadd, Peter Erskine, Vinnie Kaliuta, like those guys went jazz school. Like that's like, that's how they learned everything that they learned, but they play all this studio stuff, all Mm -hmm. this different pop music. And it's, uh, it's not the the poppiest of the pop of like what we think of today. That's right. But, um, but it's not acoustic jazz. It's not, no, yeah. yeah, and it's not like all instrumental all the time. Right. Like let's play in every odd meter under the sun and <laughs> go like totally out in all these different directions. Mm-hmm. But they all did that, mm-hmm. so they had this this flexibility and this freedom within structure and without structure. And so that's what I like came out here thinking like, oh, I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, as I started studying it. It's just, you just, you know, you get immersed in something and you kind of have to let go of some other things. I still always listen to like contemporary music. I never stopped. I mean, Mm -hmm. all, I remember I went to like when, way before they were big, going to like Black Eyed Peas, Mm -hmm. like, you know, pre-Fergie, like good good Black Eyed Peas. (laughs) And I remember going to the Roots, Mm -hmm. like, Philadelphia Half-Life tour in New York in high school like mm-hmm. and so I was always into great hip hop and rock mm-hmm. and all different kinds of stuff I never really had too many I I went to freaking crazy like heavy death metal shows Did you really? Cuz I had all these friends that like my friend Casey was way into death metal and way into like gnarly hip hop stuff wow. And so I was listening to Black Star and Gangstar, yeah. and I mean, a tribe called Quest is from the town right next door to me. My right. dad was a police officer in uh, like 
all of that area, Roosevelt mm-hmm. and Belmore and Merrick and yeah. it, like that. I grew up with that music, all those, um, you know, Tribe Called Quest records with Beach Rhymes and Life and stuff yeah. with Ron Carter playing bass. Yeah, like, yeah. I had no idea who Ron Carter right. was. Right. No. What, what death metal bands did you go see? Because uh, I was a metalhead in, in high school too. Like I was all, all like, about the blast beats and the you know. It was all like Long Island hardcore. So okay. uh, movie life and um, shit. I haven't listened to any of that in a long. Like I haven't listened to that since high school. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the names. Well, like I was I was into Morbid Angel and Deicide and Pantera. And, Pantera. Yeah. I listened to a lot of Pantera. Yeah. Um, I definitely checked out. You know, like the the more popular Megadeth and Slayer right. and right. some Dave Lombardo. And were you into that drumming? Yeah. Like, did you, did you try and... No. Okay. I didn't act... No. I went to those shows because my friends liked going to those shows. I don't know that I ever really connected with the music, which mm-hmm. is probably why I can't remember any of the names of the bands. <laughs> um, yeah. I did enjoy it. I remember going to a show like my freshman year of college when I was home for Christmas break with someone. Mm-hmm. And even after like five months of music school, just being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, why, why am I here? And like, I remember I put, I got an ear, uh, you know, like one of those foam squishy ear things uh-huh. that actually stuck in my ear because I was like trying to put it in so far to just like stop the amount oh, of volume yeah. that was coming out that my mom had to use tweezers to get the thing out. <laughs> That was your death metal experience. Yeah, I was like, you know what? I think I'm 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 probably good. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the energy of it. I yeah. appreciate the like those guys have That's some, a physical feat, man, for, for yeah. sure. And the musicians themselves have like some serious conviction and obviously the better musicians within them yeah. are probably writing some worthwhile compositions and stuff. I just uh, I lost my right my right. flavor for it. So one of the things I found out about you early on, uh, which was just something else that's completely fascinating to me about you, is that when you were studying at USC, you started out studying with Erskine. I did not. Well, you studied with both Erskine and Terry Lynn Carrington, right? I changed teachers every year. Over four years? Yeah. Okay. So what was the progression? I studied with uh, Indugu, Chancellor, first. And funny enough, as much as he is like Mr. Groove, we were working on like touch all the time. Hmm. Um, he had me doing like everything under the sun as quietly as possible all the time. And then um, I moved from him to Aron Serfati mm-hmm. to start like working on some more advanced coordination stuff. Mm-hmm. And then from him, I moved on to Peter, and that was like an interesting, like, eye-opening experience because he's a, a kind of a brilliant orchestrator. Yes. That's I mean, he doesn't use like ninety percent of what he's actually capable of on the drums most of the time because right. he's thinking about like some big picture arc mm-hmm. in the music mm-hmm. and then after Peter I moved on to Terry and Terry was a lot more like 
fiery and like <laughs> just like give me give me what you got right again like yeah. what come on something else I remember you telling me like your your experience with Erskine was was like stripping your playing down and playing less and and just boiling your musical concept down to the bare essentials yeah of the drums and and what their role is and then you started with Terry and she was like are are you going to play anything like <laughs> her my first lesson with Terry was like a huge smack in the face. It was amazing. It was. I was like, you don't have any chops. <laughs> like, like, can your hands do anything? Like, come on, yeah. you play me something. Right. Can you sing me the melody? Like, all right, now sing me the melody and play something mm-hmm. at the same time. And I was just like, oh shit. <laughs> That's their job, <laughs> you know. Right. And then, um, so I, it's funny because I, I had so much technical stuff that I had worked on, and I learned how to use. Mm-hmm. But I learned how be, this kind of ties back to what I was talking about high school, with mm-hmm. like the lack of musicianship training that went along with my drumming training, mm-hmm. and I, um, I had all these things, and I could no longer use them right because they no longer had any like musical meaning to me they were uh square pegs that i was trying to put in triangles and circles mm-hmm. and ovals and and they did not fit and mm-hmm. i needed to like relearn how to use all these things and i had to relearn how to use them in like realistic tempos and times and locations and songs yeah and yeah. they you know, as you get further and further into that, you realize there is no actual location for anything. It's, it's all about, like, what does the moment ask you to do? Right. Not what did you decide to do eight bars ago that you're going to now try and put in. Yeah. And then something right. else changed in the music and that no longer makes sense. And you try to put it in anyway. Right. It's like this that. is content versus context. Yes, exactly. Like Nick, Nick did an interview of... of few months ago and, and he talked to I forgot who the drummer was he was interviewing but he talked about you know you have your content like you own the content but you don't own the context and you have to figure out how your content is going to fit and work in and a bunch of different contexts 100% true yeah so, as a perfect way of putting it so was this was this progression of, of teachers and philosophies intentional on their part or is it just how your schedule shook out for uh, for your four years there? I think realistically I was not ready for Erskine mm-hmm. and he had a very limited schedule in the very beginning mm-hmm. and I totally wanted to study with him but I think he was probably like, no, he's not ready. <laughs> and then um, I chose everything that happened after that. Okay. I chose to go to Aron. I chose to go to Erskine and Aron was like, yeah, Peter, take him. Like, mm-hmm. It's a good time. And then um, I chose to go from Peter to Terry. And I I was doing that. I don't know that I was actually ready to leave Peter, but I was definitely ready to get to Terry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure I could take a whole other year of lessons with Peter and learn all kinds of amazing new things. Yeah, and I new, think just about anybody could. Yeah, new thought process. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it's how it all worked out and I, I wouldn't replace any of it. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely like, it's cool. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I learned 
new things every year from new people and new perspectives on music as well as new usages for what I was doing. Right. And so, so talk about that. Do you think, um, that your, your college training, um, did, did your teachers, uh, approach it more from a vocational standpoint? Like here, here are skills you're going to need to make a living and play in a gig that comes your way. Or, or was it from an artistic standpoint, like developing your, your voice and your expression? Um, both. Mm-hmm. First two years were definitely more like the skill sets, skill sets, skill sets. Right, right. And then when they can see that you're acquiring those skill sets, even though you have much further to go in them, and I would say I still have a very long way to go in them, um, if you don't start figuring out how to use those skill sets, which is like the, what you're talking about, the artistic vision point and deciding like that's cool but that's not for me Mm -hmm. that's an important decision to make at some point Mm -hmm. you know um or the opposite is like i appreciate that challenge i need to spend some time working on that like screw it let's do this yeah dive in yeah and so um terry was the one that really pushed me the most to like develop that voice by like well how do you know it doesn't fit unless you try it like you gotta try this out you gotta try that out you gotta try this out like fall on your face again Mm -hmm. and again and again and Peter was less of the fall on your face and more like okay now listen back to it and like tell me why tell me why tell me why tell me why and Terry was more like right in the moment like Right. That was stupid. (laughs) Doesn't matter why. Did it work or did it not? Yeah, you didn't like that. And I thought that was the best thing you played all day. Hmm. You know, and those are like invaluable opinions that you can never have yourself. Right. Right. Who were some of the drummers other than your teachers? I think in our, you know, in our formative years, like we can all point to certain milestones, um, or, or checkpoints in terms of drummers that we listened to or drummers that we got really into mm-hmm. at a certain point that, that influenced our playing and you know they kind of they work our, they work their way into our brain and we kind of play like them for a little while and then move on to someone else or something else yeah who were, who were some of those cats for you uh, I had a lot of the classics mm-hmm. um I transcribed a lot of Philly Joe. Mm-hmm. Transcribed a, quite a few Mac solos, some Art Blakey solos. Um, I mean, I listened to like every Tony record <laughs> I could find. Mm-hmm. And I still find new ones. Joshua White just sent me an awesome one. I never checked out Charles Lloyd, of course, of course. And it's like Tony's just being Tony yeah. like young Tony right destroying it and um, uh, yeah I mean all the usuals Elvin right <clears throat> lots of Elvin right. worked on tons of Elvin grooves off of like Juju and I mean I learned 
Elvin's shit on Speak No Evil, and then I started transcribing like Freddie Hubbard solos off of, trans, uh, off of Speak No Evil, and I transcribed Herbie solos, and mm-hmm. I learned to play them on the drums yeah. instead of wow. the. So you transcribed piano solos and keyboard solos and trumpet solos. Wow. Yeah, I transcribed a, a, a few Freddie solos, mm-hmm. and I would get notes wrong and shit, and people would help me fix things, and you know, right. Um, yeah, yeah, I because I like I started realizing like oh well, why is he playing this mm-hmm. like let's this was that's some like Erskine shit like why 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 you right and, mm-hmm. uh, and I was like well let me see what is what's going on around them yeah and then I was like ah that's pretty badass let me just check that out yeah and so I just started transcribing other people's stuff it's a that's a great point because you know it's hammered into us that we got to transcribe drummers and we transcribe drum solos and trading fours and trading eights and all that but uh, it's it's not very common in my experience to hear of a drummer actually transcribing horn solos or piano solos and i think there's there's so much content for us in in the playing of other instrumentalists and all we focus on is the drummers transcribing those guys yeah, well, melodic so, and rhythmic content, like the the rhythmic prowess of so many non-drummers, I think uh, can teach drummers a lot. Yeah, well, and there's also some funny things that, like, just as the drums have um, things that are very tailored to the instrument, mm-hmm. pianists and saxophone players and trumpet players have things that are very tailored to the instrument, and they fall easily or they don't fall easily at all. Mm-hmm. And then when you learn them on a different instrument, it's like, a, oh shit. Like, how does that work out? Like, like I don't, I never learned how to like squeeze quintuplets in here normally, yeah. like comfortably, not, not without being like a, a Anthony Cerrone, like portrait of rhythm right, or something right, like that, where it's like, let me just drill this with the metronome over yeah, and over, you know, yeah. and, and that's never actually comfortable. There's not, you're not necessarily hearing like a musical right. reference there, mm-hmm. so it's, it's um, a math problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is not really a Music. great, yeah, a great <laughs> way to learn all that stuff. But um, as I did that, I, I definitely like I started thinking a little bit more melodically, which also kind of ties in with definitely the drummer that I have transcribed the most, like ever in my life, mm-hmm. is Roy Haynes, mm-hmm. and talk about not using drummer shit yeah right it's like yeah. it's melodic motion on the drums mm-hmm. and unpredictable stuff and I don't think I really sound like him in any way really but I steal his fucking ideas right like mad yeah and his um, yeah his, his thought process still just intrigues me all the time. I can go listen to, uh, I mean, I still will go back to We Three and I'll go back to Out of the Afternoon and, you know, the, some of the classics, uh, some Pat Metheny or some Chick Corea, right? Now mm-hmm. he sings, now he sobs, or yeah. the, the trio with Dave Holland, all that stuff. Um, there's always something new. Yeah. Always something new there. Yeah. It's not. Uh, it's it's always like damn that's that's Roy but it's also like damn what, where did that come from <laughs> right. Um, right so yeah I mean formative years for sure mm-hmm. lots of time with that uh, you know 
I definitely spent some time like doing the groovy thing too. That's not still jazzy, but groovy like Al Foster, and, yeah, uh, Billy Higgins. Mm-hmm. You know, like just I got way into high heel sneakers. Mm-hmm. Um, the Blue Mitchell record, yeah, with yeah. Al Foster. That's like real groovy. Yeah, were you into Victor Lewis? You know, I have listened to a lot of Victor Lewis, but I've never ever transcribed anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm just thinking about it in terms of like the groove playing, yeah. you know? Yeah, that. And same thing with like Frankie Dunlop, mm-hmm. like just like constant, perfect time. Yeah. Not ever getting his own way. Right. Not getting the music's way. Yep. Just kind of just this through line, you know? Yeah. It's almost like a big band rhythm section but playing in a trio yeah and like sensitive yeah and those those guys I mean you mentioned sensitivity and and you know when when you talk about just playing time and not complicating things I think I think it gets a bad rap sometimes as being kind of static um but those those drummers that you mentioned like had this ability still have because most of them are alive still have this ability to to just play time and not complicated but at the same time it's so dynamic yeah and so expressive and just always adding to the music and not just marking time absolutely they're they're not marking time at all yeah they're paying attention totally totally was was coming to Los Angeles for college uh, an intentional move in, in that you wanted to make a living here did you did you think about going back to New York after you graduated? I tried to go back numerous times uh, as far as like applying to grad school and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I got waitlisted for the artist diploma at Juilliard a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I got um, I was a finalist for the Monk Institute a bunch of times when I was in New Orleans and when I was in LA. Mm-hmm. And my thing was well, so just to back up. I have three older brothers. Yeah. And when I was graduating uh, high school and I applied to a few schools on the West coast and a whole bunch of schools on the East coast too. Uh, and not all for music. Really? Yeah. So what was the alternative? Uh, veterinary medicine. <laughs> wow. I got into the Delaware program as like a music minor, but a veterinary medicine major. Wow. Georgetown. I was a, I applied to the business school in was, San Diego and I got like a full ride wow. and I went to like a prep high school that mm-hmm. was like, it's like one of the top ranked high schools in the country. So they, they're like out here. That's a big deal. Right. Um, was that stuff you were actually interested in or were, were those all plan B, C or D if the music thing? Yes, okay. exactly. So USC was my number one choice and luckily I got in and, and my reasoning I had a whole conversation with my dad about it. I remember being like, if I don't do this, I will never do this. Mm-hmm. It's like, you don't go backwards to music school. Like right. that doesn't really make sense. Like I can hate it in a year and decide to leave music school. But if I don't say yes to this right now, mm-hmm. it might not happen. So, and then my brothers having all gone to college already ahead of me, <laughs> they're just like, go West. Go west, get the hell out of here. Go west. <laughs> yeah, so, so I was like, okay, great. And then when I graduated, I did a whole tour of the East Coast with this big band. 
And I was like, I would love to move back east, but I can't do it right now. Because if I move back, I don't have any money. I don't have a place to stay. Mm-hmm. I'm in debt from school. Like, I'm going to move into my parents' house. And I'm going to have to get some kind of, like, job. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, can't do it. Not, not doing it right now. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to practice. Right. So I stayed out here and... I mean, like we all do when you graduate. I, I wanted to go to grad school, but I was like, I'm not going to grad school yet. Mm-hmm. And I need to start working. So I started doing some teaching for the Monk Institute and just piecing random gigs together. And yeah. then like two years later, that's when I started playing grad schools. And then at that point, I was like, I am not going to grad school unless it's free. That's it. That's right. Draw the line there. Right. Like, not happening unless it's free. Mm-hmm. And so it never happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, you did okay, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still going. Yeah. There's plenty to learn. Um, but so anyway, I, yeah, I thought about moving back east numerous times. I mean, my whole family's in New York mm-hmm. for the most part, mm-hmm. um, or at least the East Coast. Right. And, um, I would still love to move back there, but now I'm in a, I guess there's a different space in life. I mean, like I have no desire to move to Brooklyn with a two and a half year old. Right. And, um, not sure I want to without a two and a half year old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the city is at good energy. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But also, um, Lillian has, um, she's a, opera singer mm-hmm. and she I want to get into that too because I'm, I'm wondering how a jazz drummer and an opera singer find each other uh, we'll, 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 get yeah, we'll, we'll get there but um, she's she already lived in New York for a long time so she's not really itching to go back I mean if, if a very good reason for us to move back came up mm-hmm. we would certainly consider it but um, right now I think we're we're focused on our family and like different career goals right yeah, now. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of building. It seems building. like you both got plenty of work here. Like. Yeah, we're both working more than enough. Yeah. I mean, we're, Mom and dad are busy. We are busy. <laughs> we're, we're paying our bills and, and she certainly sucks up the rest of the time. You know? <laughs> so damn cute all the time. She being your daughter. Yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. We're in front of microphones. I should reference these things. Um, yeah, that cute foot under the door. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but um, so, how do you how do you stack up the the LA jazz scene against the New York jazz scene? Do you compare the two? Or are they are they very different? I don't know. I they are very different. Mm-hmm. They are very different. There is um, just as many world class musicians in both cities. Mm-hmm. They might have uh, slightly different ideas of um, what is right or what is correct. Mm-hmm. And then the cream of the crop in both cities kind of wipe away the right and the correct vibe. Hmm. And they start looking at music in a larger sense as opposed to like, oh, if you don't know this set of tunes, then right. you're not a real jazz musician. Well, and then there's the other side that's like, well, you don't know all of these tunes mm-hmm. and I but you're saying the best cats rise above that and yeah 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 because if they want to learn something they just go and learn it right and it's all good right um, that being said there is a 
there's very good jazz scene here. Yeah. It's just a lot more limited than the jazz scene in New York. And the jazz scene, well, I mean, just sheer numbers. Like, you go into New York and there are, like, you know, hands down, like, 20 drummers that are bucking, swinging. Yeah. All the time, like, they know their shit. Right. All those guys that we mentioned, they know that stuff. Yeah. You mentioned those guys here, and a lot of guys know them, but they don't necessarily, like, start talking about records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And then the opposite problem that I've run into in New York is, the, like, they're so serious about some of those records that yeah. they're actually closed-minded to any new interpretations it becomes, it of becomes dogmatic. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, that being said, I mean, a lot of my favorite drummers all live in New York. Right. <laughs> uh, and a lot of my favorite musicians live in New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the most obvious sign that New York is definitely a more... Uh, fertile jazz scene Mm -hmm. is bass players Mm. that tells you everything you need to know bass players why because there are a ton of great bass players in new york that work all the time and can read their asses off Mm -hmm. and can play changes like all day long Mm -hmm. like nobody's business they don't repeat themselves Mm -hmm. and they can make their way through all kinds of normal forms and weird forms and keep it interesting or keep it solid. Right. And hear that the numbers are just a lot fewer. Mm -hmm. There is like 10 guys. And as soon as you get out of that 10 guy list, you're like, maybe I should just call an electric player. Cause at least like we'll go some different directions and like they're great musicians. Right. So like they don't need to be on upright necessarily. Right. Uh, but like I said, the, you know, the, there's just greater numbers in New York of cats that are, like, very, very competent within the idiom. Right. Very competent. The, the number of saxophone players, the number of piano players that, like, you know, really know their shit. They don't just listen to, like, Herbie and Chick. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, 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 you... You know, listen to Kenny Barron and, you know, Red Garland and right. Kenny Drew and John uh, Harris. And, uh, yeah, the yeah. list is, yeah, endless. Um, but um, that being said, there's a, a very strong music scene here. And there's a lot of really fucking great jazz musicians that yeah. live here. And there's a lot of great jazz musicians here that don't do anything here. They tour and yeah. they do a lot of other work and they do a few gigs here, mm-hmm. like, you know, like 20 gigs a year. Right. And then there's a whole bunch of cats here who are jazz musicians, but they don't take it as seriously because they have a whole bunch of other gigs that they're doing right. as well. Where right. it's like, I'm a saxophone player and I love soloing over changes, but uh, I do a hundred gigs a year where I'm in a horn section mm-hmm. or someone like Garrett Smith is like a beast of an improviser. Mm-hmm. He's an amazing trombone player, but he's busy. Yeah. He's got plenty of gigs playing in horn sections. Right. All 
day long. Mm-hmm. And like he gets, he'll take a solo any chance he can. Right. <laughs> but, right. But there's not many of them. But that, I mean, that's just as much of a skill as, as being a great improviser, I think, to whether you play a horn or a rhythm section instrument or being part of a section is a skill that I think some great improvisers don't have. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's why it's kind of like it's a two way street, you yeah. know, that, that's, and that's where being so, uh, like you said, dogmatic or mm-hmm. stuck in the ways things are supposed to be can also be a detriment to your musicianship. Right. right? I mean, yeah. and that's, that's where that first comment of like, you learn to rise above those limits mm-hmm. kind of comes in. Yeah. And I mean, I, if you're not working on that stuff all the time, then you're always it's going to be limited as a musician. You, uh, you're a member of a lot of different instrumental projects, but you've also played with a good number of singers yeah. in L.A. Yeah, Jesse Palter and um, Kathleen Grace. Kathleen Grace, right? Sarah Gazarek. Sarah Gazarek, of course. Um, yeah, lots of different singers. So what? what is... What is uh, required of you behind a singer that's different from playing an instrumental group? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I like working with singers. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, so my better half is right. Is and one a, of the reasons I ask is because being married to an opera singer, not a jazz singer, but you know, a vocalist, I would imagine that you've gotten some, you know, insight as to what a singer needs, how a singer processes. I don't, I don't know that she's given me a lot of, sorry, my wife's name is Lillian. Lillian (laughs) has given me uh, a lot of insight into vocalist uh, abilities and starting to pay attention to like, Where's their ceiling? Like, what mm-hmm. are they really capable of? Because she notices so many things that I don't notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm noticing more and more all the time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I guess the, the, the thing that I've learned is probably the same thing that you learn with horn players, which is there's some people that, like, want you to challenge them. And there's some people that are just wanting you to like just do your job well. make them comfortable yeah, yeah yeah and so i kind of enjoy doing both so i'm i try not to take anything too personally like if you don't want me to push too much i won't push if you mm-hmm. want me to push like all right you let me know when that's too much right <laughs> right uh, and like jesse wants me to push mm-hmm. she likes you know certain things she wants to be straight ahead and she there's a vibe um and sarah same thing it's like some tunes it's like yeah this is it this is like we want this kind of clean thing here and then other times it's it's kind of open to interpretation and Mm -hmm. she knows that i might do something different than what she's used to or i might do exactly what she expects and (laughs) both are cool um on the on the same tip i do 
actually enjoy listening to a lot of singers. So, and I am a big fan of like serious classics. Um, so I listen to a lot of Ella and Sarah Vaughn and Mm -hmm. I mean, Betty Carter is my shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We, our first dance was the Betty Carter. So, um, yeah, I listen to a lot of singers too. And And that's part of like, to me, that's part of the idea of like, learning how great rhythm sections function Mm -hmm. like it's not just all about those amazing rhythm sections that played you know with so and so and we're like all fire all the time you know um it's ties right back to roy yeah you know like he's a beast Mm -hmm. with chick korea he's a different kind of beast Mm -hmm. with singers yeah you know and when you have that um, that flexibility, I think it's it, it turns less into like uh, playing a role and more into like just just paying attention to what the music's doing and figuring out like how you can best support it and like make it better. Right. And not show off what you can do better. Right. And I think what, what you mentioned about not taking it personally is really important because I think, I think especially when playing with singers, some instrumentalists feel handcuffed. Like they, you know, they, they, they feel like they have a certain sound and they got hired for a certain reason. Yeah. And if you don't want me to do that, then why am I here? Right. Um, but not taking, you know, the needs of the song or the needs of the singer personally, um, Incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nine times out of ten. Um, unless you have a pretty big name, mm-hmm. that singer maybe heard you once. Mm-hmm. They might be hiring you on a recommendation from some other drummer or some other drummer. And it's like they might have an idea of what they want you to do already. And it's like, okay, well, cool. Right. I'm, I'm going to do what I think is appropriate until you tell me otherwise mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. That's how I usually... And a lot of times, like, the reason you get recommended is because somebody knows or thinks for whatever reason, like, Dan can do that. Yeah. Like, I know what you need and Dan can do it. Right. And he can do a bunch of other shit. He can do whatever. But, like, that thing that you need, he can do that. Right. Um, That's... Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> projects that you are most notably and most reliably part of is Josh Nelson's discovery yep. project. Yeah. I'm done. Um, so tell, tell people a little bit about who Josh is and, and what the discovery project is. Um, there's not enough people that know who Josh Nelson is. That's kind of, I agree. That's kind of not cool. It's one um, of the reasons we're doing this. Yeah. So Josh <laughs> is an absolutely amazing pianist mm-hmm. and he's like that, um, I, I guess one of the things that I love about his playing is that same thing we were just talking about. He is like as much of a like Mulgrew Miller, Herbie Hancock fan as anybody where it's, you know, like let's play. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's just go to town on right. this tune. Just swing. And then on the, exact like polar opposite side of that he is super composed and has done like a billion arrangements for singers and um can read his 
balls off <laughs> and and has like a, a pretty incredible resume anyway yeah. without having to get like too far into it mm-hmm. but um, so I've only played with Sarah really because he was like you should, I mean I knew Sarah for a long time because we went to school together mm-hmm. but he was the one that was like you should hire Dan when Zach can't do it Zach Harmon right, right? so um, so through him I've gotten a lot of the work that I've I've had the last few years I mean mm-hmm. he and I have been playing together for six plus years now mm-hmm. and um, like pretty wide ranging musical spectrum yeah a lot of he is equal opportunity man like as far as musical influences or or bags absolutely I mean like he knows like musical theater crap yeah. inside and out he knows Classical music inside now. He's like co- constantly collecting vinyl, right? And like Chernos old, old and Hollywood soundtracks. He knows soundtracks better than anybody I've <laughs> ever met. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some composers that would school him, and he would tell me like, I don't know shit compared to so and so because he's a very humble guy, right? Right. But he is never done studying. He's always like checking out some new music or, mm-hmm. um. Yeah, and it's he definitely has a thing for Hollywood. Like yeah. he loves checking out old school, um, like like studio arranging stuff for the like the great singers right. that, that people don't think about as West Coast, but they came out here in the '60s to record this album mm-hmm. and record that album with strings or with a big band, or, yeah. you know. Um, and then yeah, the scores. I mean, he knows. Scores. He's constantly watching old movies, right? Like Twilight Zone. And- yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's he's very very deep in it. Yeah, and and then like I said, turning on like all kinds of straight ahead, just like just flipping the switch back mm-hmm. and forth. And so the, the other thing about him is that he's he's a pretty heavy science nerd. Yes, and and the Discovery Project. It, you know, as as I understand it, is kind of like the musical expression of of his science nerdery. Um, yeah, yeah, you could say that. He likes to um, he likes to f- I, as he does the projects, he tries to generally distill his ideas or like focus his ideas down into something. Mm-hmm. So the discovery project was. Um, it seems like each one of these comp- compositions is is sort of telling the story of a particular scientific discovery or, or a particular phenomenon, or something that he's fascinated with. Right. 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 And so, like, like Tesla's coil mm-hmm. is uh, not something that I play on his solo piano, but right. um, I think what he loves is that it's like this guy invented this crazy thing. That didn't work out, but it not working out is what led to all of these other discoveries. Mm-hmm. And so that just like totally fascinated him. And he's looking at it saying, like, he's a genius in his own right, but he totally doesn't get any credit because people don't look at that. Because that's not how we conduct electricity now. Right. <laughs> Freely across the air. Um, <laughs> And 
same thing. He he appreciates people that are like thinkers mm-hmm. that you know Jules Verne um, writers, people mm-hmm. that have you know open imaginations that like yeah. run wild and like why why do you have to limit this? Like right. it's those people that functioned outside of reality that helped to actually expand reality. Right. You know, it's like, well, if you just assume that you can't do that, well, then you're never going to discover if it's possible or if it truly is mm-hmm. not possible or at mm-hmm. least not possible the way you're currently thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so he really, yeah, he likes to keep his, his mind open to a lot of different things. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time as, looking at old movies and listening to old music he's sitting there reading uh you know this month's version of scientific american right. on his coffee table right and, and posting all kinds of shit on facebook about nasa and mars and yeah he and i did an awesome uh tour of jpl in the fall with uh chuck manning who works there wow and, and the we, jet propulsion lab yeah yeah we went and we did like the in the, pasadena yeah we did the off book tour with chuck because <laughs> there's you can like sign up and do the regular tour but then if you know someone that works there they're encouraged because it is a uh, a government facility it's mm-hmm. you know our tax dollars pay for it they're they're encouraged to actually take time out of their schedules to give people tours like private tours that have everything to do with the main tours and nothing to do with it. So like we got to go check out all kinds of crazy stuff. And Chuck's brother is like, I mean, he is one of the directors there. Yeah. So he's been in charge of a lot of huge missions and Chuck has a very specific job that he does. But so he showed us like what his job was, and then he took us all over the place, and we we're like walking around where they like test out all the wheels and stuff on, that are actually on Mars, like all right. the backup wheels that are still just spinning in circles, so they know how long they last. <laughs> <laughs> like these experiments that last for years, right. years long experiments, and going into like um, the huge um, rooms that are completely like beyond free of germs where they build everything and you're standing behind inches of plastic and it's it's completely fascinating stuff and i'm a total science nerd too so we are always talking about that okay i'm more like the um the anatomy biology physics nerd okay yeah so so the the latest the latest album in in the whole discovery project um Timeline is exploring Mars. Yeah, the most recently released one. Yeah, there's right. some other stuff coming. But he wrote the music for the most recent landing on Mars. Right. And so each of the main pieces of music were written for each of the different rovers that are on Mars. So again, mm-hmm. that's where like it, the distilling thing comes down. Where it's like he's thinking about the he's writing the music kind of geared towards something so he right and it's it's impressionistic sort of like capturing the essence of a of a certain geographical spot on mars or yeah for that it was it was specifically about the um the rovers the Mm -hmm. main pieces were about the rovers all of the solo compositions that are in there there's like a solo drum thing there's a solo guitar thing each of those are named after 
areas on Mars. And then what else is on there? Uh, Mars, the bringer of war from the planets. Right. The solo um, piano version. Yeah. yeah. And then... And then How You Love Me on Mars was the song that, that he yeah. and Kathleen Grace co-wrote. Yeah. That's, which is just a gorgeous, beautiful, cool song. Yeah. It's... Yeah, it's an... Well, he's just an incredible songwriter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, that goes to show, like, that's... No matter how much complexity he can add to anything he wants, he really wins at writing melodies. Yeah. Like, holy shit. Yeah. It's just... Yeah, he's an amazing composer. And Mm -hmm. that... I. That was never meant to be, like, the centerpiece of the album. It just kind of, like, presented itself very clearly. Yeah. As, like, holy... Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course that's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the, the, the solo drum piece on that album. It's... What is... Remind me of the title, because I'm blanking on it, that drum piece. It's called uh, Solus Lacus, or Lacus. I don't even know how you say it exactly. <laughs> L-A-C-U-S. It's the eye of Mars. Okay. It's a dark spot on Mars. Okay. Um, and so when we were doing this, um, part of what we were doing was um, a name that has definitely come up a lot more the last few years, Alex Chaloff, who's a great uh, video editor, video mm-hmm. recorder, sound recorder, sound editor. Um he has always been like very involved in everything that we're doing. And he was, um, putting together images of things. And then Travis Flournoy, who does a lot of the live video for Josh and has like an incredible bank of footage that he uses. Um, and he became more of the, actual um provider of like film material and then alex is more like the guy that's just recording everything for us uh travis started pulling up all the like the footage that they had like we used the um the simulation of the landing on mars for the newest rover and had all these um different clips that, that kind of like tie it, all of this together. And Josh and Travis, including for the newest projects, which they've been working on, like work pretty closely where Travis is told an idea by Josh. And then he just starts compiling all these different clips of video footage. And then they get together and they start talking about it. And he's like, Oh, okay, well that, let's change this. And like, we don't need any of these, but let's, let me find some more footage that kind of relates to this more clearly. Right. And, um, so as Travis built up that library and they started like focusing it more and more, we started playing, uh, our, all the songs to live video. Mm-hmm. Right. So Travis was already doing, live video and kind of improvising the video so that we're not stuck playing to like a click track where it needs to fit four minutes and 11 seconds or whatever it doesn't um he could sit there and fade in and out of all different things he's got all these cool controllers Mm -hmm. and travis started getting into 
uh, like really learning how to improvise and really starting to pay attention to how the music like moves and goes up and goes down. And, um, and then, so we started doing that live mm-hmm. and then, so when we went in to record, Alex and him brought in all these fucking TV screens and they were like all over the place and we're like trying to read all this music and get it right. And then also trying to like pay attention to a screen that's got like some video that I'd never seen before. <laughs> so, um, long story short, we did that entire record in one day mm-hmm. in the studio, uh, other than the solo piano Mars. Right. Um, and so I have no idea what I played on that solo <laughs> drum part because it was one of those things where I, there was no preconceived notions of what I was going to play. I was playing along to a video that nobody can see. Wow. And so I just made up this thing based on what I was watching. Yeah. And that was it. And then I did two takes and they picked the one. Wow. <laughs> I didn't even get, yeah. Man. Josh was just like, is this one cool? And then Alex was like, yeah, we need to edit it down. It's too, it's too long. And there's some places where it doesn't really go anywhere. And it's like, well, yeah, it's because I'm watching a video. <laughs> <laughs> was it the same video for both takes? Uh, it's very similar. similar yeah. 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 It was the same stuff. That's so interesting because I mean, listening, listening to it, I assumed that, you know, I, I assumed it was improvised, but I, I assumed that there was sort of a preconceived um, concept for that piece and that idea and that part of like that feature of Mars and you're going to do a musical representation of that. We figured out the the names of the solo tracks afterward based on the vibe that the track kind of brought. Okay. So um, like same thing. So Larry's is called uh, Memnonia Quadrangle Mm -hmm. and he did the exact same thing I did. Wow. He did two completely free solo guitars like pieces. Watching a video. Watching a video. Wow. And as you expect, if you've ever, you've seen us live, if Mm -hmm. you ever see Larry or I live, like half the time we're like watching and half the time we're like, (laughs) eyes closed. It's like, where's this going? Like, can I just hear this thing? And, um, so we, yeah, it was a, a good challenge to just try and figure out like, where is this, where's this going? Yeah. It it didn't, yeah, it was certainly not like, um, something that I've been working on. Right. Like, let me figure out how to do this. Let me figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. It was just, just completely freely improvised right then based on what I was being shown. That's a cool way to make a record. It is. It it's like uh, extremely liberating and extremely frustrating at the same time, mm-hmm. and that's and it was kind of perfect because we didn't have time to like hem and haw over it. Right. It was like we'll get to that, you know. Like um, we got to do the next tune. Yeah. Like we got to do the next tune, and we did two nights. We recorded it all day on a Sunday, and we did Friday and Saturday night at the blue whale like mm-hmm. working the music out with the videos and stuff like just like getting it down right so that we went in on sunday and it was just like 
all right, let's do this. Yeah. And I think Josh slept like four hours and <laughs> he's just like cross-eyed, like what just happened? Yeah. I think but, I, I talked to him not long afterwards and he's like, I'm, I'm never making a record after two nights of gigs ever again. <laughs> yeah. But there's like a, a good energy that like it or not was brought because of that. Yeah. So there's, I, I say like it. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. It's, a, it's an interesting album and it's definitely like, um, I think it was a challenge for him. He was trying to, to like raise the bar for himself. Like, I don't want this to be like all clean and perfect and like arrangements of standards that I can do in my sleep. And mm-hmm. that as long as we rehearse them a few times, you guys would be fine on, right. you know, this was more, uh, a little bit out of his comfort zone, a little bit more like, I want to, I want to like tackle something different that, that means something to me and that hopefully means something to somebody else mm-hmm. and not, um, overdo the details. thing I want to ask you about was um, you're you're part of so many projects and so many groups some of them ongoing like Discovery Project and some of them just kind of one off like so and so is coming into town and doing the Blue Whale and Dan's on the gig um, do you have a specific method for staying on top of all this material and, and coming to the gig confident in your knowledge of the tunes and, and knowledge of the musicians that you happen to be playing with that day. Um, cause it, from, from my perspective, you're, you're involved in so many different things. It's gotta be hard to just keep shit straight and, um, and, and feel, feel confident on the gig. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. I guess I have been, uh, been working on so much different music for so long mm-hmm. that I mean, well, sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it's like I barely like got into this music, mm-hmm. and we're only playing it like on one show or three shows, right. and it's like holy shit, the third show is like it's so much easier. Mm-hmm. Like, why couldn't they all be like this? Right, and then. Other times, um, it's like, cool, I haven't done any stuff like this before. Let's, let's just do it. Let's read go for read it. and listen and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. And there's some that are like, you know, challenging. And man, I wish I either did prepare or could have. Because sometimes it's just like, you just, there's yeah, not enough time so to really. Yeah. Or not even so many hours, but like, you can sit there and learn someone's music off their record and get to know all the material. Mm -hmm. But then if you still haven't played with them, it's that is its own challenge. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, yeah, I've never played with you. I've never played with you, but we're playing standards. Like, cool. I can, like, I already know the material. So now I get to just pay attention to you. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you do? How do you make your way through these things? Mm -hmm. What kind of, what kind of things do I instantly recognize? What kind of things am I surprised by? Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, other times it's like the music is so intense that you feel like you don't even get to know what they really improvise like, but you get a good idea of their personality from the music that they've written. Mm-hmm. 
And um, the, I guess the helping point always is, you know, when you have material ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I am certainly confident in my sight reading skills for the most part, unless it's like some gnarly, yeah. gnarly reading. Yeah. Um, Which sometimes it is. like <laughs> Sometimes it is. I mean, it's pretty rare that anybody gives me music harder than Dan Rosenbooms. So I feel m- mostly comfortable. Because yeah. like, I can read my way through his music mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. having <laughs> gotten my, my butt kicked a lot. <laughs> um, and like... I guess it's kind of that, that same thing that we talked about in the beginning. It's like trying to pinpoint what is what is the most important thing here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so like doing Rosenboom's music, I mean, now I've done it a lot, so it doesn't matter. Um, but like learning how to shift gears constantly is what I had to learn with him. Mm-hmm. With Nelson, it's like, how do you give everything shape, but keep the forward momentum, mm-hmm. right? And with like Dick Oates, it's like, swing <laughs> like keep up like like I've been doing this since before you were born I've been swinging harder than you know how to still right and um, and then someone like Gilad Hexelman I mean holy Jesus he is got the most incredible touch on the guitar mm-hmm. and is an incredibly thoughtful player and and his music is intensely hard but you would never guess that when you hear him play it because Mm -hmm. it's just so effortless Mm -hmm. and like that was a gig that like I spent a solid like week two weeks at least like just learning some of that music and like just listening to Marcus Gilmore just destroy it and it all sounds so effortless and you're like oh it's Oh, that's not so bad. It's cool. Like I, 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 yeah, I can understand how this goes. Mm-hmm. And then you start playing it with them, and you're like, nah, I don't know this. No, nah, I <laughs> thought I knew this. And and like he's like, oh, cool. No, we'll just do it a little bit slower. It's like, don't worry about it. We'll do it a little bit slower. And like before you know it, like I'm just pushing through it, and it's like I just crapped all over that. And the majority of listeners probably don't notice that like they probably appreciate the, the new energy or whatever but right but I'm, what, what just came out of you isn't what you had been listening to and studying for. exactly <laughs> and, and you can see like with with Marcus is, or I mean uh, with Gilad it's like I'm not I'm not going to show up and play like Marcus like that's talk about a very like unique sound on the drums and yeah. just gorgeous like musical moments that happen but they've also played that all their music together for years and years so. right right uh, um but yeah that and then you know i'm like i said i the other thing that helps is that it's not all new to me mm-hmm. i listen to a lot of different music so i'm as likely to be at home listening to like just recently, I started going back listening to things that I used to listen to in high school. Mm-hmm. This is a nice little circle here. Yeah. Um, like making a playlist for her that was like Paul Simon and yeah. Aretha Franklin and, you know, James Taylor and mm-hmm. all this stuff that I used to listen to. And it's like, I know these songs inside and out. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you know, going back and listening to, 
know, all different kinds of stuff. Brazilian music. Yeah. Singers just playing some straight ahead stuff. Listening to some Basie and some Thad Jones and some Mel Lewis and listening to, you know, P.A. de Kilimanjaro, Miles, right, right. and, and then listening to, um, you know, some like knee body and some really technical twisting in and out some Mahavishnu. Right. So whatever, whatever gets thrown at you, you can, you can have some reference that you've at least ref that you, you've at least listened to yeah. as part of your library that you can yeah. say, it's kind of like this or it's kind of that groove or that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, you know, and not to ever put anybody in like, you know, little boxes. It's, it's certainly, I'm not trying to do that to any of those people I just mentioned. It's just mm-hmm. like, I have it. It helps if you have a reference point. When you hear them, if it's not foreign to you in every way, right? you're like, oh, I can see like that is an influence or that is an influence. And I can hear that like the drummers that he always chooses have some certain things in common mm-hmm. or um, the way he arranges his music has a lot of things in common with so-and-so or yeah. just with himself over like you can see how mm-hmm. people put things together yeah. so some of it is like um you know i i also like to read about how other people digest music and like get some different viewpoints on it so the idea of um like i'm just gonna dive in and just start like hit play and just start making notes on a chart is what I used to do mm-hmm. and that does not make any sense to me anymore now mm-hmm. I need to like play like the whole album because mm-hmm. sometimes you start on a tune that's like the easiest or the hardest and you're going to start judging the whole rest of the album based on one song right? or whatever material they send you right so I've started to realize like oh no I want to get like the vibe what is going on here what are they thinking where is the music going right is, is just focusing on one song could put you in the wrong headspace for right. the overall concept of like yeah. that night of music yeah you could like you know put on this thing that's it's like the randomly like out tune right. or the like more groovy like almost uh, overly energetic tune mm-hmm. and then you listen to everything else and it's, it's like oh that's a very different vibe right. all of a sudden right. um, or you have an idea of someone's playing from one of their albums and they have like eight albums right. out <laughs> you know so yeah. um, I'm more and more I'm starting to get into like the bigger picture again yeah like so it, it sounds like a fair amount of, of practice and shedding to be sure but but as much if not more just sort of study and I spend a lot more time digesting the music listening than I do sitting at the drums mm. Yeah, I also don't have much time to sit at the drums anymore <laughs> right so I, I end up sitting at <laughs> I end up sitting at the drums during lessons, during rehearsals, during gigs, and hopefully in the new year when I like I have so many things I want to practice and I don't always have time to to like actually work on or I have things I want to work on but you know working on it one day and it's almost like what's the point right like because there's more advanced concepts so right. I feel like I get a lot more 
understanding of people's music, listening to it and checking out the ins and outs and where is it going and what is it doing. Yeah. And, um, and then I, I'll sit here and like play along to it. If there's some weird twists and turns in the music right. where it's like, just get something under what, your hands. And, what is that thing? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. some, some of the new Rosenboom music, like he sends me MIDI tracks of like messed up things. And it's <laughs> just like, I just need to repeat like, from 146 to 230 again because yeah. that section is up <laughs> and it repeats twice and then it moves on and then you like get the section down and then you're like oh now I need to work on the transition damn it right and yeah so those there are things that I need to go to the drum set but mm-hmm. I feel like more of it is ears yeah, yeah. more ears well, less cool. hands yeah <laughs> there you go more ears less hands yeah, <laughs> yeah. sage advice from Dan Chanel uh-huh. nice. <laughs> Dan thanks so much for doing this man yeah and continue, continued success Thank in you, 2016 with Josh and, and all the other dozens of projects that you're in on and uh, with your lovely family Thank you, sir, and to see you. Thank you. Happy happy travels there. Thank safe, you. safe travels. Yes, that's more yes, please. Happy is important too. But, um, yeah. Thanks Atlanta, so much. Atlanta, man. here you go. Atlanta. Hey. Man, looking forward to food. Ha. There you have it, Dan Schnell. If you're anywhere around Southern California, I highly recommend you find out where Dan is playing and and go see him. Uh, whether he's playing something original or more avant-garde or uh, more straight ahead and swinging. He just has amazing facility and vocabulary around the kit and a really sophisticated ear. And again, it's because he has put in the time uh, and is continuing to do so. I also recommend you get hip to Josh Nelson, whose piano playing and compositions uh, rank high on the list of my favorites. Uh, You can check him out at joshnelsonmusic.com. You can also find some recordings with Dan there on Josh's website. Uh, thanks as always for listening. Please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes if you feel so inclined. That's very helpful to us. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>